the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect on our weekends and a really funny story from them. And then a new podcast looking at Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Hope that you all had a great three-day Memorial Day weekend, and we're glad to get back at it today. Aubrey, it feels like summer is here, like, right? Not weather-wise, but the beginning of summer. Memorial Day, here we roll. I actually had a hard time going, oh, wait, I got to go to work today. (laughs) I know. I thought the same thing. And like, even my kids were like, oh, we got to get up and go to school tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, you guys still have a week of school left. (laughs) We're not done. That's right. They still do have a week. And my high school girl's been out for like two weeks, so she's just killing her uh, her younger siblings with it. That's right. That's right. So, uh, let me just start off today by sharing with our audience a hilarious story from the weekend. Are you ready? It has to do not just with me, but with me and Aubrey. Oh, yeah. I know what story you're going to tell. This is a good one. Okay, go ahead. Because I, this to me is just so strange, like such a small world. Uh, my son, as is often the case, right, Aubrey? Baseball tournament this weekend. And uh, so Saturday morning, him and I are driving up to Kenosha, Wisconsin. Our <laughs> way, not bad. We're driving up 294, 94, past, you know, uh, Great America, all of that yep. way. So we're cruising, we're talking, we're having fun. And all of a sudden, I look at a car to my right, kind of <laughs> in front of me, to my right, in front of me, to my right. And I realize that it has a very, um, uh, a sticker that I recognize on the back. And that sticker is from your church. And all of a sudden I realize Aubrey and her family are right in front of me on 294. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> and, so, and so I pick up the, I go, Jackson, that's my co-host up there. He's like, what? And so I go, I'm going to call her. And I just called you and you're like, I could, I was guessing. I was, I wanted to hear you just be like, oh. <laughs> like, well, I was definitely like, hello. Like, is everything okay? It's Saturday. Why is he calling me? He never calls on Saturday. What's, or, fr- what, yeah, it was Saturday. Or what's was going Saturday. on? What's going on? And he's like, turn around. I'm, I'm like, right behind you. Just go, Aubrey, I'm right next to you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so hilarious. It was like the shock in your voice was really funny. And then, uh, and then it got weirder because I thought I hung up my phone, but I hadn't. So you were still talking to me. And I- <laughs> I didn't know. And then we took a picture. Your husband took a picture. And yeah, I made you. Like, I'm like, drive up, drive up. I'll take your picture. As if it was like, like a celebrity sighting exactly. or something. I love the picture because my son has this look in his eyes like, uh, hey. Cool. Awesome. Dad. But yes, your husband Your husband was waving his arm out the window. People must have looked around. and been, I was actually up before you even called you. I was honking the horn. I was like, that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Were you really? We must have missed that. Yeah. You and Kevin look like you were engaged in quite the conversation so i was like all right i i gotta like you know you just interrupted something really serious no we were i think we were probably in the middle we were driving to kenosha wisconsin ourselves for a wedding we were officiating and i think we were probably in the middle of planning the wedding but then we were also really debating should we get 
Six Flags season passes. Are our oh. kids old enough to do it? So you might have interrupted that really meaningful conversation. It was very close to Six Flags. <laughs> and so what did you decide? Uh, so only one of my sons is ready for roller coasters and the other are still afraid. So we decided we'll take them all like once. But until they're all ready to ride all the rides, we're not going to get family season passes. Okay. So a controversial take here. Okay. Okay. I do not like Great America. Mm. I do not. And really, because it's what you just said about the roller coasters, I'm like that guy who gets really nauseous on that. Oh, yeah. Has <laughs> so, that happened as you've gotten older or has that always been the case for you? So funny you should say that. It has always been the case for me, oh, but it okay. is exponentially worse now that I'm older. And Carrie yeah. used to be able to ride anything, my wife, and can't anymore for that exact reason. Like, that's ah, a getting old thing, right? It like, is so dis- disappointing to me because I love roller coasters and I'm the same way. I can't ride them without getting nauseous. But I actually, I think I've told you this before. I have started bringing prescription anti-nausea meds when I go to theme parks just because like I'm riding those rides. <laughs> like I'm paying that money. I'm riding those rides. So I it dis- is one of life's disappointments to me. <laughs> That's really funny. I dislike Great America enough that when I was a youth pastor, one of the highlights of the summer was taking the students to Great America and uh-huh. I wouldn't I wouldn't go. You were like, forget it. <laughs> I didn't go. I sent my wife and some of the other leaders and I would stay back. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> That's just good leadership. You're like, you know what? No one will enjoy me. I won't enjoy this. You guys just go. I empower you to go. <laughs> so I didn't realize that the wedding you were doing was in Kenosha, that we were actually in the same town this weekend. Yeah, that's funny. I wonder what hotel did you guys stay at? Because there were a lot of baseball people at our hotel. And I thought, I wonder if Brian and Jackson are here, but we never saw you. So I can tell you that that's why they were there. This was a pretty big tournament. Uh, oh, we okay. didn't stay. Like, every, Oh, gotcha. Okay. No, we drove that back and forth Saturday, drove it back and forth Sunday. And uh, oh, there was, gotcha. I was not getting a hotel. But yeah, it, that's Kenosha was beautiful. It was beautiful this it weekend. It was a beautiful weekend. Yeah. How was so you told us on Friday that you and Kevin were kind of splitting a wedding. You were doing a wedding together of someone who's been on the show multiple times, Hannah Granowski. Yep. Uh, How was the wedding? It was so beautiful. And I just want to give a shout out to millennials. Like there are a lot of times I think older generations can look on millennials with cynicism and kind of like, oh, you know, we talk about even that on our show, like our millennials following Jesus. This group of friends that surrounded Hannah and her new husband, Aaron, they were so inspiring, so in love with Jesus. So like it was like a mutual affirmation club. Like they were all just constantly talking about how amazing the other one was. (laughs) And, you know, Kevin and I, for a moment, we had to even fight our own cynicism. Like, is this real? Is this genuine? And it was, and it is. And at the, by the end of the time, we were like, we love the next generation. The church is <laughs> the future of the church is awesome. Like it was a beautiful anointed wedding. They love each other. They love their families. They love Jesus. It was very sweet to be a part of. And it was simple. It was on a farm. It wasn't showy. Like it was just a very sweet weekend overall. That's awesome. My goal is to grow your cynicism back this week. <laughs> it'll, <laughs> it'll happen. We have articles coming up that I'm already like, oh, there's my cynicism. <laughs> there it is. I missed you for a weekend. I missed you for a weekend. Uh, are you a? This is going to sound like a strange question, but pastors understand this. I had a long talk with a pastor friend of mine once, where he declared that you're either a wedding or a funeral person as uh, a pastor. I- yeah, no, I am a wedding person for sure. I'm a, I I actually think I would be really good at funerals because I tend to be very okay with grief and stepping into people's grief. Like I just really don't have a problem with it and I know how to um 
yeah, I know how to show compassion in those situations, but there is something so life-giving about watching a couple just decide in this bitter, cynical world to just choose love. You know, there's something really <laughs> yes. sweet about it. What about you? Are you a wedding or are you a funeral guy? I am 100% a wedding person. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, I love weddings, but I do get the pastors. The one that I was talking to that day is a funeral guy, and mm-hmm. I get it because – there are certain people who are wired to be like in uh, people's lowest points to be yeah. there with them and be yeah. that support. So to be a funeral guy doesn't mean you're like, I love death and I love it. No, you're just, no, you're just like gifted for that. Yeah. Right. Whereas like, uh, you know, a wedding, you just kind of feel like you're part of the celebration. And mm-hmm. so I do get that. Let me close this by saying also, how nice is it that it was Memorial Day weekend uh, COVID numbers are the lowest they've uh, been since last March. Yes. Uh, like it, I don't know. Did you feel I feel it feels normal. Things feel really kind of more normal. And I'm not one of these people who's like, forget everything that happened. But I don't know. There was just something nice about the normal. Oh man, we liked, we took the kids go karting. We we went to restaurants. Of course, we had the wedding, and it did. It felt normal. It felt like a good kickoff to the summer. It felt like we even made a list of things we're going to do this summer. So it feels hopeful. I'm with you, Brian. That's good. Well, did you go to a place called the Kenosha Brewery? By the way, oh, we did not. That would have been fun. I did go there with some of the other parents before the game, but I did not see you there either. But 294, we were there with each other. We were there. (laughs) We're glad to have you with us as we get back into a normal work week here. Coming up next, speaking of cynicism, uh, want to share something uh, that a former general, a former high-ranking member of the Trump administration said over the weekend that was not just shocking, but really troubling. And I think we as Christians need to wrestle with it. We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Tuesday. Always a tough day, the day after a three-day weekend. Right. It feels like, oh, man, we should all be just, you know, going to the lake now and doing stuff. But, uh, nope, got to work. So we're all back at it. Kids are back in school for another week or two, uh, at least our elementary school kids. And uh, But summer is definitely uh, on the way. We didn't talk about this the first segment. We went. Uh, with my wife's family to uh, we're out in your neck of the woods out in West Chicago where hey. my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live and they have a pool and fun. Out, and it oh, just fun. felt like summer. It I just it. felt like summer and it got me super excited. So, it's awesome. uh, but we're glad that you are with us today. Uh, all right. We talked about earlier, not being cynical. I'm going to turn us uh, politically cynical here. I, I want to, <laughs> Uh, and I want to be careful. We we try to be careful not to give too much oxygen to what I deem or you we deem as kind of crazy talk and craziness, right. especially right. under the umbrella of QAnon and uh, kind of that movement. But but I did see something on the news this week, uh, and and it's about who said it, uh, and um, that makes it worth talking about. So here's the background of the story, and then we're gonna play. What he said. This is Michael Flynn. Now, Michael Flynn has become a uh, pretty kind of out there conspiracy theory guy, but he's no small person, former general, but also important for this conversation. Michael Flynn is the former, uh, he is President Donald Trump's first national security advisor. Wow. Uh, so that's no small deal. This is right. like you said off air, we were talking. This is not like somebody in their basement posting something exactly uh, on some blog. This is at an event in Dallas. 
uh, that was uh, really kind of a QAnon conspiracy theory, kind of the big lie of the stolen election. Right. Like, you know, still kind of propagating those conspiracy theories. That's what this event was. Uh, and let me preface this uh, with the um, – well, actually, we're going to hear this. Here's what I want you to hear. Uh, Michael Flynn was taking questions – from the audience. And so what you're going to hear is in a very fast clip, you're going to hear uh, the question that was asked by a man here at this event in Dallas. And then the second voice you hear uh, is former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, his answer. Let's listen to them. I want to know why what happened in Minamar can't happen here. No reason. I mean, it should happen. No reason. That's right. All right. So if any of you had a hard time picking that up, the audience member says, I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen here. Here's what happened in Myanmar. A coup, right? Like a violent coup, <laughs> right, right. an overthrow of the government. And remember the setting here. This is people going, uh, the, the election got stolen from Donald Trump. And so this person's asking, why can't we do something about it? Let's do something about it. And you would have expected a former general and uh, and a national security advisor to be like, well, no, let's uh, let's just calm that kind of talk down, right? Yes. But instead, again, it's a little hard to hear. So if you didn't hear it, what Michael Flynn exactly said was, no reason. I mean, it should happen here. No reason. That's right. Uh, that was his answer. Now, in fairness, later, Michael Flynn uh, went on parlor and said his words had been twisted. Lawyer Sidney Powell, who represented Flynn in the past, said that he had no way encouraged any act of violence or military insurrection and that his comments had been grossly distorted. Uh, but, Aubrey, I would say this. His comments are his comments. Like the question well, right. was, <laughs> why can't Myanmar happen here? And he said no reason that it can't or that it shouldn't. Like that right. is really scary talk. It's very disturbing. I mean, uh, it, you know, I understand that his lawyer is saying that it was twisted. But the, at the end of the day, it sounds like he's saying there should be a military insurrection or some type of insurrection. As we saw on January 6th, there should be another one in response to uh, Biden's presidency, which I'm like, we're in a democracy. This is America. We are not in a totalitarian dictatorship nation. Like, <laughs> it's what we love about America. And right. so this is the part that I get frustrated about. I mean, that's just, it's not good leadership, period. Like, right. you don't stand there and advocate for violent responses when things don't go your way, period. Like, that's just, <laughs> you know, I think the frustrating part to me is I keep hearing about this, like, the election was stolen, so we should fight back as if like somehow violent power is going to change the whole democratic system. And mm. had Trump won, would we be feeling like the election was stolen? Like, I, it's just so baffling to me. Yeah. And Sidney Powell, who's the lawyer we mentioned earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at that same event, uh said uh, said that Trump should be, quote, simply reinstated and that, quote, a new inauguration day is already set. <laughs> and so you're I, like, hold what? on a second. And so there is this kind of whole world of conspiracy theories. And that's what I want to dive into here. Because yeah. this talk is dangerous. Agreed. It, it's people, uh, if if enough people believe this, people are going to get hurt. People are going to die and, yeah. and things are going to get really bad. Uh, and so just this idea of conspiracy theories, we haven't touched on this in a long time. Uh, 
but but Aubrey, I want to I want to have a conversation about Christians and conspiracy theories mm. and, and how we are supposed to be people of the truth and also people who are not kind of stoking the flames of violence. And we do see conspiracy theories uh, around the election. Uh, and, and we see people really rising in prominence in the political world, right? Yeah. Marjorie yep. Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, these types of people, right, right, really rising in prominence over conspiracy theories about the election, conspiracy theory about vaccines and COVID nineteen and this and that. What would you say, Aubrey, to the person out there, uh, the Christian out there, who goes, you know what? They're probably some. These might be right, or you know what? I I do spend a lot of time reading these things. What is our role as Christians and as the church, as these things kind of uh, gain steam, if you will, maybe not in mainstream uh, culture, but but in no small number of people in our churches, in our friend groups or even in our families? Yeah, I think, you know, the other side of this conversation are folks who would say, no, it's the it's the current administration that's trying to pull the wool over our eyes or it is the media that's trying to do this. And so I do think sometimes it's hard to go, okay, well, what is my true north? And I I think ultimately I we need to step back. I, I don't think Christians should be uninvolved in politics. This is not what I'm saying, but I do think we should step back and remember that our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true king is Jesus. Our true loyalty is to the kingdom of God and asks ourselves, like, do we trust that God is sovereign or not? And really, like, we got to get some perspective. I feel like that's part of the problem is we're we're so indoctrinated and ingrained and like buying into all of these narratives that we're forgetting whose kingdom we actually belong to. Mm. And I, I mean... I don't think any Christian should support any conspiracy theory, period. I don't think any Christian should be like retweeting it or no Christian should be promoting violence, period. We follow the example of Jesus who promoted peace, you know, Um, but ultimately it feels like a bigger conversation about like what has our hearts and who is discipling us and is it politics or is it the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And Mm. I, and I don't totally know how to unravel that for people, but it feels like we need to step back and the Holy Spirit needs to do some work. What do you yeah, think, Brian? I think you make a great point about truth, that, that both sides of this whole spectrum, uh, especially on the fringes of both sides, are really peddling some crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And that that it does become hard to go, what is actually true? Yeah. But as people of truth, right, that's what we claim as Christ followers – as people of truth, I think it becomes then incumbent on us, like you said, to do even more homework. That's it. To try to go, is there truth in here or is this kind of just a crazy talk? Is this yeah. a shred of truth as opposed to what we tend to do is I'm going to retweet this. Right. I'm going to share this on Facebook. Right. Because once we start peddling things that are easily seen as not true or a lot of people don't believe to be true – then how are they going to ever listen to us? We go, well, no, but this this gospel is actually really true also. And uh, and, right. and the two begin to get conflated. Right. And, and so I, don't, I, I do always hesitate to kind of platform people like this, but I thought it was an important one to just say, what are we doing? Like what yeah. Yeah. Uh, we can't be talking like this, like you said, in a democracy with elections. Uh, and, and we as the church need to be at the forefront Uh, of pushing back against these things. Well, coming up next, uh, as I continue to try to build Aubrey's cynicism, we're going to (laughs) discuss a new 
uh, podcast that actually looks fascinating at Christianity Today, uh, both the uh, the subject matter of it and also what it's trying to get at. We're going to talk about this new podcast next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, are you a podcast listener? I am a podcast listener. I, I like podcasts. I like to listen to them when I'm on uh, the treadmill. My husband listens to them way more than I do. Like really? He is, a, he is a podcast consumer. But on road trips and stuff, I love a good podcast. What about you? Are you? Well, this might be a top five list sometimes, so we better be oh, careful. Oh, okay, top okay. Five best podcasts. I listen to a ton of podcasts. They tend to be sports related. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know... Every now and then I'll dive into some other stuff, but uh, it is weird. Like you kind of get into a podcast and once you find one you like, you just dive into it. I started one this weekend. That's literally just like, like a like a mystery one. Oh, yeah, uh, those are good. And I'm only two episodes in, but it's fascinating. There's a story of a lady who disappeared on September the 10th, a couple blocks from the World Trade Center. Nobody oh. saw her after the night of September the 10th <gasps> and then September 11th happened. Come on. And they don't know if she died in the buildings or if something nefarious happened. And it's like this whole mystery, like all over the Internet. And I'm like, that oh, I've never fascinating. heard this Wow. <laughs> so, and so it's good. And so you all might be wondering why I'm asking about podcast. A, uh, so that you can uh, subscribe, rate, review to our podcast. Uh, but B, there is a fascinating new podcast that you and I are. We, we heard the trailer that we're about to play here in a second. And we both said, I'm going to listen to that. Yes. Uh, it's out of Christianity Today. Christianity Today does as a kind of an arm of them that does podcasts. Uh, and so this is a new one uh, that be, that is diving into the story of what happened with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church tries to unpack what happened. And we'll get into that story a little bit. But here's the best way to get at this, to introduce this. Let's just listen to the trailer of the upcoming podcast. When abuse is done by a pastor, it becomes spiritual abuse the way all abuse is. But then it also means that God has been dragged into it and he is on the side of the abuser. I really don't have words for the kind of damage that that does to a soul. When a small group of us started what would become Mars Hill in 1996, we could not have dreamed it would be what it is today. You know, I was in the blogosphere for 10 years, and I knew for a fact that my numbers shot through the roof whenever I blogged about Rob Bell or Mark Driscoll. There's a few guys where if I wasn't going to end up on CNN, I would go Old Testament on them. There's very real chronic trauma that comes from serving within systems like this. Why does this story play out in other churches? Why are we not looking at the deep-seated reasons for this? Nothing will change some of the amazing things that happened at Marseille. And nothing can change the pain and hurt and devastation but also people experienced at Mars Hill. The rise and fall of Mars Hill. 
All right, again, Aubrey, sounds fascinating. Yeah. And I know it's a little inside baseball because we're both pastors. And so uh, we, we, I know people even in my church who I've mentioned the name Mark Driscoll and they're like, who? And they I'm don't like, know who? who he is anymore. Yeah, right, right. I got to be honest. When I started our church back in 2010, I was listening to a ton of Mark Driscoll. Like, oh, uh, wow, he, really? Just like I would, li- I had certain preachers that I would listen. Yeah, he to was when a was great. Well. He was a great communicator. There's no I was doubt about listening it. to Matt Chandler, Mark mm-hmm. Driscoll, and maybe one others. And eventually, mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm listening to them so much that I like am picking up mannerisms like when I preach, <laughs> like that kind of stuff." That does happen. Yeah, that's so true. But for those people who don't know the story, Mark Driscoll, he was he started a church called Mars Hill in Seattle. So mm-hmm. don't confuse this. There's a Rob Bell's Mark Driscoll in Michigan back in the day. Uh, but this is Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And he also started the Acts 29 um, uh, movement. Network. Yeah. Yes. Network. Church Thank planting you. network. Yeah. Thank you. Network. Uh, and they've done lots of great stuff. But Mark Driscoll's church. Uh, he kind of positioned himself as like the manly man, right? And, Definitely. It was uh, all about like machismo for exactly, sure. Exactly. And if you wonder what we're talking about, go Google Mark Driscoll. And uh, and so people were always confused because he rubbed people the wrong way and his church saw a lot of fruit. And those might not those might actually go together and not be two separate things there. Right, right. Uh, and so I'll never forget Matt Chandler at a conference saying, hey, a lot of you think you're like Mark Driscoll, but only Mark Driscoll can get up and say, point one, you're an idiot. Point two, you're an idiot. And then see people come down the aisle. Right. Kind of that <laughs> right. idea. Uh, but the short of the story is, and go ahead and listen to the podcast. The short of the story is Mars Hill, uh, Mark Driscoll got in trouble for a lot of things, some anger issues, some plagiarism issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just being a bad guy. Like, yeah, just issue. kind of being a jerk, it seems like anyway. But here's the deal. There was no, there was no like sex scandal. There was no money. The things that normally take a church down. Right. So what you would have thought was Mark Driscoll would have been removed from leadership and the church would have found somebody new and away they went. But within a month of Mark Driscoll's step being removed at Mars Hill, the entire church uh, shut its doors yeah. and kind of imploded. And that's what this podcast gets after. Uh, I'm interested to see if they also tackle the fact that Mark Driscoll just kind of went off and started a whole new church down in Phoenix that also has thousands of people, which is probably a story for another day. But uh, they're going to get at what does this say about evangelicalism, that somebody like Mark Driscoll rose to the prominence that he did when most people behind the scenes knew that he was a he had some I'm going to be kind here, some character deficiencies. That is kind. That's kind of you. And so, uh, hey, why are you excited to listen to this podcast? But more so, as you look back on what I will call the Mark Driscoll era at Mars Hill and evangelicalism, what does it even say about at least that portion of evangelicalism? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm excited. I'm not excited. I'm never excited to celebrate the downfall of like a pastor or a church. So that's Mm -hmm. not why I'm excited. What I am grateful that Christianity is doing is it, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. The evangelical church is really having a come to Jesus moment when it comes to our celebrity culture and some of the um, sort of 
bad leaders we've allowed to keep leading, frankly. And so what I appreciate is that we're turning the lens on ourselves by way of Mars Hill and by way of uh, Driscoll's, you know, popularity and celebrity and power and what have you. And I think this is not going to be just about Mars Hill, but going to be about the larger story in evangelicalism. And we'll really get to examine, like, where did we go wrong? How can we do better? How can we tell a better story about Jesus and about his church? as time goes on in the next generation. And so that's why I'm excited about it. I will say, you know, coming into church planting, you know, Kevin and I planted seven years ago, but we've been talking about planting for like 10 years before that. And of course, Acts 29, Driscoll, Mm -hmm. like they were influential in some of our thinking and some of our, you know, we went to a small conference of of church planters and Driscoll was one of the speakers and he was very moving. And so this is what is fascinating is these sort of you find out these stories of corruption meanwhile like you're saying brian you're listening to the guy and being influenced by the guy so i think that's another important question is like who do we allow to impact us and what does that mean when they fail you know i mean it's just gonna it's gonna be interesting what do you think the very first church planning conference i ever went to it was uh mark driscoll it was uh, Darren Patrick, who tragically uh, yes. also kind of fell and, and tragically committed suicide. Committed suicide, yeah. Uh, and the third person there was Ed Stetzer, who I'd, I'd never heard speak before. Ed's now a friend of the show. Yeah. Uh, that was the, and it was in a room of like a hundred people. And I was mm. like, this seems weird, but yeah. something is also compelling about this. I think you are right there. It is not a past issue. It is a current issue right. of, of Christian celebrity culture. We're going to talk about it later again, about mm-hmm. another story that popped up this weekend. Uh, but the very fact that Mark Driscoll left uh, Mars Hill and within a year started a what would most people would consider a successful new, new church right. down in the Scottsdale, Arizona area says something. It really does. And I think we have to continue to have this reckoning uh, in especially the evangelical church world of uh who do we hold up as quote unquote celebrities who has the loudest voices within yeah. the church movement because yeah. it trickles itself down uh, into the churches that are planted, the pastors preach everything. It trickles uh, its way down. So I'm fascinated to see this, uh, to listen to this as it comes out. I'm sure it will give us more to talk about. Well, coming up next again, Aubrey and I are both pastors. Our churches are starting to reopen like all churches out there. Uh, an interesting uh, idea at Christianity today that says, Maybe one of the things we've learned is to let little children res- uh, continue to remain coming to, quote unquote, big church. Aubrey and I, as pastors, we're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, Christianity Today, I just was reading this today. As uh, as churches begin to reopen, my church, your church, we're uh, we're reintroducing kind of a little bit more robust children's ministry just this Sunday. Uh, and so this article, I think, is an interesting one. Where are you guys at? Because I know it's complicated for Renewal Church because you guys rent a space. Yep. Uh, but as things are changing and reopening, where are you guys at right now? We're going to be back June 13th, which we're very excited about uh, back in our space because it's finally opened up. 
And as far as kids ministry, we're looking to hire a children's pastor right now because ours moved away. And so if you uh, need a job, you reach out to me. (laughs) So now we know what you think about children's ministry. Are you back in your regular space? Like, are they letting you back in now? Yes. So they are finally going to let us back in our regular space. We meet at the community center in downtown West Chicago called the Ark. And they've been, you know, closed. They've been following uh, guidelines and they're finally open up to large enough groups that we can go. And so we're all very excited. It does feel like we're sort of relaunching the church in a lot of ways. Um, So we're a little overwhelmed, but a little excited too. So I I think it'll be great. What about you guys? You've been back for a while, right? We have been, but I'm glad that the Ark is reopening for groups of 10,000 because now that you guys can be Exactly. I mean, obviously that's how large (laughs) our church is. (laughs) Uh, So we've been open, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, which isn't helpful on the radio. Uh, We've been open since last the end of last summer, but it's all been very um, measured, right? Like you yes. have, you've always had to sign up and you've had to wear masks. And for a while we didn't have any kids ministry. And now all we've had is like one class for ages four through 11 that meets only during the sermon, right? The kids leave the service. Uh, but so this week we're e- reintroducing a nursery and only within the last two or three weeks have we stopped doing signups. Uh, and with okay. uh, with the vaccinations and everything made masks uh, much more optional for people. Yep. So it's starting to feel more normal. Now we're in the stage of, huh, who's coming back now? <laughs> <laughs> Who goes to this church? That's exactly right. <laughs> we don't know. We're kind of at that stage. But yep. uh, it is it, it, like you said, I think you said it correctly. In many ways, it feels like you're restarting your church. Totally. And going like we joke about who's coming back, but it's it, like you're restarting it as in like, I mean, maybe maybe your church is different. I think every church is going to be smaller. Yes, uh, I think I every church is going to feel different than it did on March the whatever of yeah, twenty twenty. Yeah, uh, priorities are different. Relationships are different. Yeah, people have moved away or stopped. They've gotten mad at you about masks over the yeah. last year or whatever yeah. else it might be. It's just a diff. Our churches are different, and I think every pastor is trying to figure that out. And uh, as it relates to children's ministry, one thing that's been going on, whether you are online at home or at churches, is for the most part, a lot of kids have just been in, quote unquote, big church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been in there with their parents or they've been watching with their parents. Uh, and I think uh, I personally am super excited to get kids back into kind of their setting where where we knew that. Uh, they really thrived and did well. But I do start to think about things when I read articles like the one written at Christianity Today by Jen Wilkin today uh, or earlier back at the end of April, where she said, let the little children come to big church. And she premises this, one lesson from COVID-19, don't underestimate the model set by worshiping alongside your kids. And so Mm. she is going to try to walk a line where she says there's still value to children's church, quote unquote, as she calls it. But that one thing we've learned is the value uh, and the even the appetite, she will argue, that a lot of kids have for being in big church by their parents and seeing uh, communion and listening to the sermon and singing alongside. Yep. And so Aubrey, again, as somebody like myself who has been like, I cannot wait for the day when we can have children's ministry because it's going to be symbolic for us of yes. like we're moving forward a little bit here. Yes. Uh, she kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in there. And so as you guys are restarting, kind of what is where where is your gut on this about, um, no, I want kids back full fledged, whole service children's ministry 
or have we learned something along the way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely I definitely think there is value. There's been value for us as a family to worship with our kids. It's been fun to have the kids running around when we have met, you know, to have mm-hmm. the kids running around and playing with each other and visiting with their parents. And I agree, doing communion, singing the songs together. I, I really have enjoyed that. That said... You know, I remember the years of dragging three uh-huh. little kids to church and feeling so frustrated that I didn't get to hear the message. I didn't get to participate. My kids were, you know, and then they were. I, I, so I don't know. My heart just goes out to like the young parents who are like barely surviving and right. need that hour break from their kids. And my heart goes out to like children's ministry volunteers who are very passionate about pouring the gospel into kids. So I think there's a value to both ultimately. I, I mean, that may be an easy answer, but that's really how I feel. And I think that's what she's saying in this too. She says, uh, I'm a big fan of children's ministry. I think it's invaluable. I'm even paid to think about it by my church. But let me be clear, <laughs> while children's church is a wonderful supplement to big church, it's a terrible substitute. Mm. And so she's kind of walking both lines. Uh, this this might come across as just a little bit cynical, but you were touching on it as well. I think kids, all kids being in the worship service and and you know catching what's going on and this and that, for me is better in theory than in practice. That's it. That's it. That I, I even right now watch some of our parents just struggling with their kids. And again, it's not a bad struggle. It's a good thing. Uh, but but sometimes I'm like, man, I, I just wish – I always tell people, if you want your kids to be in the service, that Have them, them in there. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. That's right. And as a pastor, I always make a point from the pulpit and also in private conversations with people going, I don't mind crying kids. Like I yeah. don't – don't think about like, oh, no, what am I doing? Like, You're, that's fine. We understand if, that. Yeah. If it's driving you up the wall as the parent, feel free to leave. But, yeah. you know, I'm not ever going to do that. But I do think there is something and I get it. It's more of a newer model in the last, you know, century or two. But there is something to age specific, just learning uh, and experience. Targeted. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I do think we as parents still need to be discipling our kids and talking to them about things like communion, things mm-hmm. like baptism. One of the things we've always done at our church here is whenever there's a baptism, we bring all the kids in for it. Uh, that's what we do, too. I love that because then kids get to see it and celebrate and it becomes this whole communal experience. I think that's a great way to do what she's talking about in this exactly. article. I think, I think as pastors, as leaders, as everything, I think there are times – to insert kids into big church without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and going, maybe we should just, you know, maybe Aubrey's church shouldn't hire a children's pastor because it's not, no, I I still think it's needed. Yeah, definitely it's it's needed. (laughs) Certainly needed. And uh, yeah, so hey, if you need a job and you're great with kids. uh, DM me. Yep. (laughs) Oh, that's how we, that's how the kids do it now. We DM you. (laughs) Yes, that's how the kids these days do it. (laughs) All right, coming up next hour, another disturbing story of leadership failure. I know we talk about these a lot, but it feels important to unpack. So we're going to do that next. And then we're going to be joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She's the author of a new book that's being talked about by a lot of people called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. So she's going to join us next hour here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about celebrity pastors, narcissism, and how the church can get better. And then we're talking with Dr. Beth Allison Barr and her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. You're listening to The Common Good. 
Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. My Hello. name is Aubrey Sampson, and we uh, have another fun conversation, Brian. Uh, we're talking about another celebrity pastor, or the same celebrity pastor we've actually talked about a few times on <laughs> <Yes>. here, Carl <laughs> Lenz, but another accusation of sexual abuse uh, by his nanny. And I, here's what I want to say. We don't want to keep like hammering Carl Lenz. That's that's not our goal is to like beat him or Hillsong to the ground. We love Hillsong Church. But I do think this is another conversation about how this keeps happening. Why uh, celebrity pastors seem to be allowed to get away with things that other pastors and other just human beings aren't. Mm -hmm. And then how can the church get better? So um, basically, uh, just this week, actually, I think it was over the weekend, Carl Lenz's former nanny came out saying that she experienced sexual abuse while living in the Lenz home, that there were inappropriate text messages. There was inappropriate touching. He repeatedly, she says, touched her intimate areas. And because of the power dynamic, she didn't feel comfortable saying anything. And again, I I don't know what you think about this, Brian. Well, actually, I probably do know what you think about this. But it's (laughs) like, you know, you hear these stories, like the story came out that Carl Lenz was having a secret affair with a woman. And then now this is coming out and it's just, it seems like every time there's one story, there's a hundred stories behind it. And it's so discouraging. What did you think when you saw this? Yeah. First, when I saw it, I was like, uh, not, not surprised anymore from listening to these stories. I think you make a great point that we're not trying to just beat down Carl Lentz or Hillsong, but here's the deal. Uh, we do feel like on our show that we do have a little bit of a platform here to be able to highlight things that are wrong in the church culture and and ask the question, not only how can we do better, but just to challenge people and say we have to do better. Right. Like because there is – we talked in the first hour about Mark Driscoll and, and we talk uh, about other things. You know, the, We often joke how the very first segment of the show two and a half years ago was about James McDonald and Harvest right here in our own backyard and then wow. about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. And uh, what we want to say as we continue to look at this Carl Lentz story is how does somebody like him, who was clearly a narcissist, his boss has labeled him a narcissist, right. he was clearly doing things uh, that, like you said, no pastor should be allowed to do, but it was being kind of uh, – like it was being allowed over time. There were whispers about it because there was so much quote unquote fruit. And that's always the problem, right? It's always, well, a little narcissism, a little abuse, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, they might lie a little bit, but look what God's doing. In right. Our church. Look at how the church is growing. Look at how lives are changing. Yes. But eventually, and this, if there's anything that kind of defines our show, when we talk about this, it's this next line, character matters. Like Mm. your integrity matters, especially as a leader, as a pastor. And if you're a church that turns a blind eye to to character deficiencies, deficiencies of integrity, that's going to come back and get you. Like it's going to happen at some point. We see that over and over. It might not be weeks. It might not even be months. It might be years, but it's going to come back to get you. And and it's going to uh, create such a, uh, such dramatic results, negative results within your church that it's just not worth the quote unquote fruit. And that's why Carl Lentz has become like a bit of a, 
you know, a lightning rod for this. Right. Because like you said, uh, once the once the dam broke here, everything's coming out. It's kind yes. of the same way we've seen with other pastors. And you just go, how was this ever allowed for a month, a year, 10 years? And the answer always comes back to, did you hear him preach? Uh, did you see how many celebrities were coming? Did you see? Right. Gosh, they were in the middle of of Manhattan, and there was a line of people to get into church every Sunday. Like there, people dismiss it, and then until it's too late, and then you go, "Man, yeah, how did we let a narcissist? A how sexual did abuser, we let this happen? Whatever." And it happens over and over again. And I know people might be tired of listening. You and I are tired of talking about it. Seriously, it's so discouraging to come up against another story, but we feel like we need to talk about it. There's actually um, a clip here of Brian Houston, who is, you know, the founder, the head really of Hillsong. And um, he's talking about Carl Lentz. This was from a meeting of church executives and top donors that was held in November. I wanted to play a little bit of this N- again, not to look like beat Carl Lentz down, but because it gives us a picture of some of the things they knew and some of the things they didn't know. So here's that clip. Just a, a difficult man to have any kind of, um, what's the word, direct conversation with. Uh, because it was always defensive. It would always be put back on the other person as though they're the ones with the problem. And so they, they were not easy meetings. And I was already at the point um, uh, at the end of summer that I felt like Carl, Carl and Laura's time in was coming to an end. Um, and then, of course, uh, what actually happened is that uh, Tulu. Uh, a conversation with one of the staff members and that staff member had found very compromising chain of text messages on uh, Carl's laptop or computer. And so that person went straight to Tulu. And to her credit, Tulu, the first thing she did was call me. Uh, I knew it was an urgent call because it was very late at night and, you know, she needed to talk. So again, that's that's Brian Houston just talking mm-hmm. about how he knew that Lentz was a difficult man to have a conversation with. He calls him a narcissist. Later on, we didn't play this, but later on, he says that he found out there was more than one affair. They were significant affairs. Um, and that apparently the Houstons didn't know until someone finally came forward. But the reality is, is it does seem like they knew this man was a narcissist and knew this man was difficult. And so that goes back to what you're saying, Brian, before is that how do these quote unquote powerful celebrity pastors, how are they allowed to get away with this when other pastors aren't? And then what do we do? I think ultimately, like, what do we do going forward? So this doesn't keep being part of our story. Yeah, I think one of the answers to that question is we have the wrong scorecard. Hmm. So as churches, if you ask anybody, uh, not most people, if you say, what is a successful church, right? What are the immediate answers? The number one answer, if this were family feud, the number one answer would always be lots of people. The church is growing. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Lots of money, big building, program, whatever else. Carl Lentz produced a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Carl Lentz produced a lot of uh, buzz around the church. Carl Lentz produced, he was on TV all the time. Yeah. Uh, They produce these types of things. And so, therefore, when when that is your your scorecard, you start to turn a blind eye to things like character and integrity. And I would just say to church leaders out there right now, 
if you know there are character deficiencies, no pastor's perfect. No pastor's perfect, right? But if you, but you all know what I mean when you say when I say character deficiencies. If you know that there are character deficiencies out there, you got to do the hard work of like, you know what? Even if this is going to shrink our church, even if this for the health of our church, we need to do this for what it means to be a pastor. Like we got to go back to the New Testament and what it says a pastor is supposed to be mm. and what a pastor does. And I would also encourage pastors out there, if you're in a bad spot, again, you don't need to be perfect, but if you know you're in a bad spot, like give a hard thought to at least taking some time away. Yeah. And, uh, and go to your elders if you have elders and just say, you guys, I'm burnt out. I'm seeing some stuff in my soul that's not good. I need help. You don't have to carry this alone either. Y- you've right. got a team of people ideally around you that's there to help you step back if if things aren't going well. Absolutely. And so uh, it, it's a it's a cautionary tale. We'll put yeah. it like that. Yeah, uh, it's a hard story to talk about, but it's an important one that I think we need to keep wrestling with. Yeah, let's keep wrestling with it, even though we don't like it. Right, Brian? Well, That's coming right. up next, we are so excited to have Dr. Beth Allison Barr join us. She is an associate dean for professional development, professor at Baylor. She's also the author of a new really exciting book that seems to be making a lot of waves called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And so be sure to join us next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She's the Associate Dean and Professor of History at Baylor University. She's also the author of a new book uh, that, as we were talking off the air, uh, is is widely talked about at the moment. The title of that book is... The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Beth, we're so thrilled to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And Beth, before we dive into this book and everything else, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little better? Yeah. So I, before this, before this book came out, I was a mostly obscure medieval historian who worked on 15th century sermons. And I'm also been a pastor's wife ever as long as I've been an academic, I've been married to a pastor. Um, and so this book really kind of brings those worlds together. Hmm. So Beth, that's actually what I want to talk to you about. So you've gone from really uh, researching, investing in medieval history, and now you're writing this book that thankfully is growing in a lot of popularity. Um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, again, is the title. Talk to us about what led you to write it. Yes. So I really never intended to write this book. Um, This book in some ways was kind of born out of, uh, can I say desperation? Mm -hmm. Just simply the realization that there was so much that I knew as an academic um, that could shift the conversation about women in the church. And it's not just me that knew it. It is so many faithful Christian academics um, who have been writing and talking about women's roles in the church from a different perspective for quite a long time. But that perspective was not filtering into the into the evangelical church. We have a distribution problem, as we talked mm. about it. And it seemed to me that the situation had become dire enough that something needed to be done. So, yeah. 
And so, Beth, as we think about that, I, I would just love to know kind of uh, the overarching premise. What is it that you think is go- is wrong in the church's understanding and especially the understanding of complementarianism uh, through the through the generations? What, what do you think we've been getting wrong in the church? Yeah, so that's actually pretty easy to answer. Um, it's the basic premise of my book, and mm-hmm. that is that our current understanding of women's roles as being divinely ordained to be under the authority of men, um, that this is not a biblical view, that mm-hmm. we argue that it's biblical, but I argue that it is constructed in history um, mm-hmm. and that we can trace its historical construction over time um, and show that what Christians have done today is we have read things into the text instead of actually really doing what we claim to be doing. And that is understanding the Bible on its own terms. Wow. That's so good that you're doing this work, Beth. Um, Okay. Can you, you know, I don't want to spoil the content of the book, (laughs) but but you, you know, give, give our listeners an example of that where we have uh, read our own, you know, understanding onto the text, but perhaps what the text is actually saying. Yeah. um, One of, I think the most, um, famous, infamous, I don't know at this point, discussions that I have is about Paul, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's my discussion about 1 Corinthians 14. Mm -hmm. And this is the passage where Paul is talking about prophecy and tongues and how we're supposed to um, do that in the church. And all of a sudden he has this moment where he stops and seems to be talking to women. And he says, you know, women, why are you talking in church, why don't you just ask your husband those things at home? And it's this very abrupt sort of um, sort of uh, insertion into the text that scholars have been debating about for a long time. Like, what is Paul doing here? And I had the epiphany, and I'm not the only one who had this epiphany, um, but I had the epiphany many, many years ago when I was teaching a parallel text um, from Livy in my women's history class. And I realized that the speech that Livy records there from a Roman um, guy named Cato, that it sounds really familiar to those words in 1 Corinthians 14. And in exploring this, what I begin to realize is that what Paul is doing in that text is he's not telling women to be silent and ask their husbands at home, but he's actually quoting the Roman world. These mm. are Roman words that he is bringing into the text to refute them. Because immediately afterwards, he says, what are you, you know, are you the only ones who the word of God has reached? I mean, it's this really weird sort of thing. And it makes a whole lot of historical sense if we realize that Paul is quoting the Roman world, a practice that the Corinthians are doing, and then saying, why are you doing this? This is not what we do in the body of Christ. Hmm. Uh, you know, Beth, when I've been taught, uh, whether in school or in churches I've been a part of, uh, complementarianism, it, Paul's words are super important, but it's also been, it's usually been rooted back in the very beginning, Genesis yeah. 1 through 3. The higher uh, so I'd, yeah, I'd love to know how you tackle that, because oftentimes in complementarianism, what I'll hear is, what they'll say is, um, no, I wish it was only about Paul, but it actually goes back well before that, before any of that. And so therefore, this is kind of more God's design. So how do you talk right. about Genesis 1 through 3? Yeah, well, I mean, I would actually argue that it is still rooted in Paul, that what they are doing is they are taking a reading of 1 Corinthians um, 11 that talks about that, um, that, you know, Christ, that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then they take that hierarchical, the way that they interpret it as a hierarchical reading in 1 Corinthians, and then take that back to Genesis um, and then interpret sort of the um, the creation story through that. 
There's a couple of big problems with that. First of all, um, I think in 1 Corinthians 11, that we are reading hierarchy into that text. Um, there's been a lot of scholarly discussion about this, that this text, again, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, this is the Roman world in which we live, but we have to do it the Jesus way. And that hierarchy is not the Jesus way. Um, right. And so there's a lot of scholars that have discussed this, like Lucy Pepiat, Scott McKnight. Mm-hmm. They do a wonderful job with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if we look back at Genesis, one of the funny things about reading creation into that is a lot of it says, look, you know, here is God and he creates the animals and he creates the earth and all of this stuff. And then he creates Adam and he puts Adam over all of this stuff um, and Adam's in charge of it. Well, then, I mean, this is actually really funny. The problem is that if you read hierarchy into that, then, and hierarchy is built into creation order. So when God creates and the people, you know, he creates somebody who's over the rest of it. Well, the last person he creates is Eve. Right, um, right. And I mean, this is really ironic to me. I'm like, and I'm not the first one who's talked about this. Yeah. Uh, there's people are like, this just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this clearly isn't. I mean, what God does is he creates humanity, gives humanity charge over the earth, and then humanity gets split into the male and the female. Um, and I mean, there's not hierarchy in this. Even Russell Moore argues that there is not hierarchy in the beginning of Genesis, even though Russell Moore would still come to a complementarian understanding. Yeah. So I would say that reading hierarchy into Genesis is um, adding to the text and it's pulling from a wrong reading of Paul and then applying that backwards to mm. Genesis. This is such good stuff, Beth. Um, obviously, this is an important conversation I mean, it's an important conversation, period, because we've seen the devastating effects for women. Women haven't been allowed to lead. Women have been silenced. Women have been abused. Um, It seems very important for such a time as this, as more and more stories are coming out about church abuse and church scandals. And I guess this is a big question for you to answer, Beth, but I'm wondering how can we get better? Yeah, no, that is a big question. Well, I think one of the things we can do, and that's really what I'm trying to point people towards in the book, is thinking about the implications of our theology. Um, what we believe matters. Ideas matter. And when we believe that there is something inherent about the way women are created, that they are eternally put under the power of men, this has theological implications. It also has reality implications. And the reality of that is that men treat women as less. Mm. Um, and so I think that's something, how can we get better is we can understand that those ideas matter and start thinking about why we believe those ideas. Yeah. Yeah, we're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr, Associate Dean and Professor of History at Baylor University, also the author of a widely discussed new book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I would love to talk to you about uh, biblical interpretation. Yes. Uh, people out there wondering, how then do I know when things I read in the Bible are bound by culture? And when do I know when things are timeless, when things are they apply across times? How do you answer that question about biblical interpretation? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So one of the things that you can do is um, what I call, you know, consistency is an interpretive virtue. This is something that you will hear all sorts of biblical scholars talk about. um, And even any any sort of academics will talk about this. And so one of the things you can do is simply say, okay, so does this match? Like if I see my reading of Paul as being hierarchical and arguing that women are under the authority of men and shouldn't have leadership, does this match what else Paul teaches? And if you look in Paul and you look, say, also in Corinthians, where he talks about all of 
of the people in the church have gifts and those gifts in giving out those gifts, there is no discussion of gender or hierarchy in any of those gifts. That might give you pause. And then if you look at Romans 16 and you see all of the women who are in leadership positions and you realize that Phoebe um, was given Romans as a messenger and taken, which meant that she was the first preacher of Romans, um, then you're like, well, that is not consistent with what I am reading into the hierarchy of Paul. Um, and then if you take that out even further and look at Jesus and look at how Jesus treats women, and then you can be like, well, that really doesn't match. So is the Bible wrong or am I wrong? Hmm. And I always think that probably it's me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably right. It's probably not the Bible. It's probably not God. It's probably me. I feel like that's a fair yes. posture for all of us to have. Um, Beth, I want to ask you a personal question, if that's okay. Um, yes. You know, I'm a woman in leadership. I'm a woman who preaches. I get lots of direct messages from strangers <laughs> who like to quote scripture at me or tell me things yes. they feel about me. And I'm imagining on the scale your book is growing that you are getting lots of positive, encouraging feedback and lots of negative feedback. And I just wonder, how are you navigating that? Um, as carefully as possible. <laughs> um, it's, it is difficult. I never, I never expected it to be this big this quickly. Mm. And so I, it did sort of catch me off guard. Um, and so I'm learning as I go along. I also am really trying to stay in sort of the center. And, you know, part of what I've done here is I've set off conversations and I can't answer all those conversations and I don't need to. People need yeah. to work this out for themselves. And so part of me just needs to resist that sort of teacher impulse in me to jump in and try to help people come to answers. That's not going to help anyone. I just need to sit and just let them talk about it. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do more and more of. It's hard. Um, but I don't think people really need me anymore. I think they mm. just need to talk about these ideas and see what happens. Yeah. And Beth, kind of along those lines for, you know, we all know a lot of people out there, uh, men and women who even after this discussion or reading your book will be kind of convictionally complementarian. Like they like, but yeah. I want to do this really well. Everything from soft complementarianism to whatever else it might be. Uh, what's your word to them then, you know, them yeah. saying, no, you know, I'm, I really believe that complementarianism is what our calling is. How would you then um, help them do it well? Like, how do they yeah. still, how, how do churches that remain complementarian still hold up women and still do this well, as opposed to some of the abusive ways we talked about earlier? Yeah, well, they really need to think hard about the implications of their beliefs and how that translates into how they treat women in their churches. Um, so one of the things that we clearly see in the Bible is women acting in ministry. And you might argue that their gifts are not exactly the same as men. And I'll, I'll let you argue that. I'll disagree with you, but I'll let you argue that. And I'll be like, okay, does then what we see women doing in the church match in in scripture match with what you are allowing women to do in your church. Um, and so that would be one of the things is like really look hard and see where do you, where you have women using their gifts and where do you need to have more women using their gifts? Um, I also think if you, I would point people towards um, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger is a church called Tove mm -hmm. and let them think about what happens when you exclude women from the table um, of leadership. 
that when you don't allow women to be part of the decision making in a church, where you don't allow women's voices to be accepted as the same as men, when we think about the impact of things that happen in the church. And what that leads to is women's voices being ignored, women's testimonies being ignored, and women bringing to light abusive situations yep. being ignored. Yep. And so you've got to put women at the leadership table and recognize their voices to protect other women in your church. Yeah, that's so good, Beth. We actually, uh, earlier in the show, we did uh, had two conversations about Carl Lentz and, and more abuse allegations that are coming out about him and about yes. Mark Driscoll as well. And, you know, we don't need to sit here and talk about those specific men. But I do think what you bring up is important that because women have been left out of conversations, a lot of these abuse scandals have been allowed to continue or to go on in secrecy. And I I guess the question I have for you is, it feels like a come to Jesus moment for the church. Yes, I think Uh, so. What do we do? You know, how can we continue to allow women to to share their stories? And how can the church get better at, at looking at itself and doing something different? Yeah, well, I think one of the things is we just need to, um, we, we need more humility. Um, oftentimes when the church is confronted, and I can even think about it in my own posture as an evangelical, when people confront me with ideas that are different from mine, our posture is to be defensive. Um, mm-hmm. Our posture is to be like, well, I'm right. We want to win. And, you know, Jesus never tries to win. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus listens. And Jesus, um, and I, I think we just need to adopt more of that posture of Jesus. Be like, okay, maybe I, I still stand on my principle here, but that's not going to make me not listen to you. That's not going to make me not recognize your humanity. Mm. That's not going to make me treat you less than I think Jesus would treat you. Yeah. And I think if the church would just do that, if we would listen And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about with my students, um, you know, especially graduate students, you know, they love to get into texts that are new, new books and be like, ooh, let's find what's wrong with this. (laughs) And my thought is that's true. That's part of what being in academia is. But what if instead your posture is, what can I learn from this? Mm. Um, That changes a lot of things. It doesn't mean we accept everything that's in a new idea, but it means instead of trying to argue against it, we are listening to see what we can learn from it and how it might make us better. And the yeah. church needs to listen and learn right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Beth mentioned a book earlier called The Church Called Tove. We've had Scott McKnight on multiple times to talk about that book. I can't encourage you enough uh, to go out and get that. Beth, we're so grateful yes. for you and coming on. Hey, before we let you go, uh, where are all the places people can find you? Website, <laughs> social media. Uh, if they Google your name, they're going to find a lot right now, too. But where, yeah. where else? Yeah. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I, I haven't Googled my name in a while. I probably shouldn't. Um, so on social media, I am on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and my website, all Beth Allison Barr. So if you look at me under Beth Allison Barr, you'll find me in all of those places. Um, I hang out a lot more on Twitter, although it's becoming a less hospitable place at the moment. (laughs) But um, so I've been gravitating towards Instagram because Instagram is really great because you just leave pictures and you don't talk as much. (laughs) So um, anyway, but I'm in all of those places. You can find me on all of those places. Um, You can also find me on Patheos on the Anxious Bench, where I write at least once a month. Um, and so you can, can follow this, the story unfolding um, awesome. on Patheos on the Anxious Bench. Wonderful. 
best book is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Even if you've listened to this and think that you disagree with her, I would still encourage you go get the book and read it. Mm -hmm. Be challenged. Allow it to have a conversation with people in your life uh, and you will be better off for it. Beth, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Absolutely. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromms. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, Aubrey, it is the summertime. Yeah, a lot of us are going, what, what's my rhythm going to be like? And you pointed us to an interesting article, if not an extreme article, at Relevant Magazine. See, you're learning. Now, Ian used to know this very much. I love lists. I love whether we create the list or we do an article that's got a list. So we're going to end the show with a list. But it's about this idea of simplification, this idea at Relevant Magazine. It says 10 ways to simplify your life. Uh, But Aubrey, don't you feel like as as we are getting older, I know you're the young one on the show by like six months or whatever. But like as your kids get older, as your house just gets more and more cluttered, as your schedule gets more and more cluttered. Mm -hmm. Don't you just feel yourself drawn to some of these questions of like simplification? Like, how can I simplify my stuff, my schedule, my family? Like, how do we do this? I find myself drawn to stuff like this right now. I mean, there are times I feel like I I tell Kevin, I want us to move just so we have an opportunity to like go through everything and get rid of things. Like I, yes, I love the conversation about simplifying, 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 just because it feels more peaceful, honestly. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what this article gets at. 10 ways to simplify your life. We don't normally do this, but what we're going to do is just walk through these 10. And uh, I think I'll read them. And then I want you to answer, does this seem good or doable or super over the top stressful? Okay, gotcha. And then maybe how is there a way to massage this? Like, maybe not that, but I'll do this portion. All right. Number one, practice the one for one rule. How many things do you own? He says, my rule is that I'm not able to answer that question with it. If I'm not able to answer that question with an exact number, then I have too many possessions. Oh, we started by donating most of our wedding presents. And then he goes on to say that they have a one for one rule for every new item acquired. One item must be donated or recycled. It's a great way to keep us from hoarding. Aubrey, what do you think of the one for one rule? Yeah. So I don't necessarily think you have to practice a one for one rule, but I definitely, when I get new clothes or my kids get new shoes or whatever, I go through everything and just, I mean, I almost do like a whole house, like toys we're done with, clothes we're done with, and I just purge. I'm a pretty consistent purger. I don't necessarily do like, okay, get this, throw that away or, or not throw it away, but you know, donate it. But I, uh, I, I definitely am a purger. I feel like that's really helpful. I think I am too. Like I will, stuff will just go. And then one day I'm just like, I want to throw everything out. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I do it. I do it in like, like an emotional, you know, moment where I'm like, everything's gone now. I can't take it anymore. I found myself really jealous of my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They had a, uh, in their driveway for a couple of days, they had a dumpster and completely filled it. And I was like, I just want a dumpster. Please let me. Yeah, it's so fantastic. Uh, One thing that I do is I keep a bag for Goodwill always in the laundry room. And so anytime there's something, I just kind of consistently fill it up when it's filled. We take it and then I grab another one. And I just kind of have that going as part of the regular rhythm of our family life. 
One place not to do the one-for-one one rule is with kids. Like, well, I have one, I donate one. So. <laughs> right. You're, that's not acceptable. That's true. <laughs> Number two, use only the housing space you need. All right. This one's going to – we're going to struggle with this one. He says yeah. – there's a, there's a proverb that says the man with a thousand rooms still sleeps in one bed. And he talks mm-hmm. about how they now live in a 248-square-foot uh, 1975 Airstream trailer. Wow. While you don't have to move into a house on wheels, he says, it might be worth exploring. Do you really need that extra room, double garage, or oversized living room? Only the space you need. What do you think? Oh, this one I struggle with, especially having three kids, because like I want my own space. I want them to have their own space. I want separation. You know what I mean? So I I could never live in an Airstream trailer. My dad had one. We used to have sleepovers in it because we thought it was fun, but not living. I don't like the tiny house concept. I like space in my house. And the I, question is, who gets to determine what space I need? Right. <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. It depends on the day. Okay. Number three, tone down the technology. Uh, he goes on to say, people think we're strange. We don't own cell phones. We buy used car and used t- laptops. We don't own a TV. So you're getting a picture for who these people are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, Again, I feel like there's a version of that that's realistic. You don't always have to be on your phone. You can turn the TV off. You know, right. there, are, there are ways to balance your technology. And I think you and I have talked about the dangers of being addicted to your phones and stuck yep. to your phone. So uh, speaking of addictions, number four, break, da- break your addictions. He mm. says, life is far more simple and freeing when you cut. Uh, addictions like porn or coffee or smoking or drinking or betting on sports or buying lottery tickets or Facebook. That is yeah. quite the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and so he goes on to talk about cutting things that may be addictive. And I think that's a helpful one. Let me jump. Yep. Uh, let me keep going. Yep. Number five. Here's a tough one. It's where I'm going to put this on you. Learn to say no. He says, my natural temptation is to say yes to every speaking request or social engagement, but my wife, thankfully, guards our schedule. Mm. We need to say no to some things. This one's an interesting one coming out of COVID, but Aubrey, what do you think about learning to say no so you can say yes to other things like spending time with God or with your close friends and your family, reading and other things? Yeah, I'm actually really good at this, believe it or not. I wasn't always as like a 20-something, but as my time, I feel like, has gotten more full with work and my kiddos and my... Like, I want those things to be the things that I invest in, the people that I invest in. And so I'm pretty good at just saying, I'm so sorry, I don't have time right now. I bless you and I love you. Or, you know, I only say yes to certain speaking requests if it works in our family schedule. And what about you? I feel like you're you have a hard time saying no. Is that right? Uh, I would say I used to. I'm better at saying no now. I'm also married to somebody who might be too good at saying no. Uh, (laughs) Yes, gotcha. The introvert in the relationship. It is the beauty of marriage where we, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of that yin to the yang. And so I would say this was a bigger struggle for us early on where I wanted to say yes to everything. I'm a new youth pastor. We got to go to this and go to this and go to, and Kara's like, "Uh, we're newly married. I just want to go on a date. I want to be with my husband. Yes. Interesting. I think age has made me more of an introvert and I'm just like, nope, I can say no to that. Yeah. But, you know, that is a hard one in general. All right. Number six, invest in a small circle of friends. I feel like that has to do with much more of a personality type. Don't sure. you? Because some people are like, I just like to be in a big yeah. room of people. Yeah, that's that's definitely a personality type thing. I agree with that. All right. We have a minute left. So I'm going to okay. read the next four and then okay. you just pick one. Yep. Uh, number seven, get out of debt. Number eight, remember, this is all about simplifying your life. Number eight, simplify your work routine. 
Number nine, cut out time wasters. And number 10, this is for us pastors, find a faith community. All right, grab one of those. Yeah, I'll go. I'll grab get out of debt because there have been times when Kevin and I have had school debt. I mean, I'm in grad school right now, you know, and uh, we've had credit card debt in the past. And that always has felt so stressful. I hate having debt hanging over me. Now, I'm not talking about household debt. Like, of course, we're paying our mortgage consistently. But like the when you don't need debt and you have it, that feels stressful. So yes. I love the idea. No debt. You just can walk a little bit freer when yeah. you can live debt free. Absolutely. I like number nine there, cut out time wasters. Like I feel that in my life sometimes where it's like, oh, I'm so busy. And then you look at your day and you're like, yeah, probably not <laughs> a, yeah, probably if I hadn't been on Twitter as much as I had, right, or right. I hadn't done this. If I wasn't that, playing that, Candy Crush for 30 exactly. minutes, that would exactly. have does, saved my life. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't just go do mindless fun things, but right. I, if you looked at your life and like how much time wasting am I doing? That's probably interesting. All right. Well, those were interesting ways to simplify your life. So many of us feel like our lives are overcomplicated. Thought that would be a fun way to end the show. We're glad that you joined us today as we get back into the work week out of uh, the Memorial Day weekend. We hope that you're having a great day. And here's what we want you to do. Join us tomorrow from four until six. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.